thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. This is the Policing Matters Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One. Hi, welcome back. I'm Jim Dudley. Uh, Jim, uh, last couple of weeks have been um, really interesting in the news with regard to a uh, federal agency and a private entity. The Federal Bureau of Investigation um, is calling for Apple to assist them in um, getting into the phone of one of the attackers in San Bernardino. And um, Apple is claiming that uh, it is um, it is not going to do that. And it's actually gotten into quite a back and forth with um, Apple uh, coming under considerable fire uh, for resisting this uh, investigative tool. Um, I authored an article which um, happily was, was well received in some quarters and not well received in others. It was a very balanced response. Arguing that um, you know that the FBI should actually do this on their own, and that um, they cannot or should not uh, compel a private entity to damage its business model. Um, I have a feeling you're not on the same side. No, you know it's funny. We we rarely disagree on these things, but um, I am of a mind that in this particular case, and I realize the armchair experts and the pundits all have an opinion on the precedent setting case before us and for here on for eternity we're going to be stuck with a rule i i disagree i believe in this case in regards to terrorism uh when congress passed laws after 9 11 Mm -hmm. for special circumstances i believe this can be included in in terrorist related um searches uh i believe the Apple's admitting they don't even have the technology. Right. They're, they're saying they cannot be compelled to turn over technology they don't have, and they're actually being asked to, to do something for the federal government. And the latest uh, article I read was Apple asking for Congress to rule. And the only reason I could, I could um, guesstimate on that one is the, the uh, Bill of Rights uh, section, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says that Congress uh, has the authority to regulate commerce among states and foreign nations. And Mm -hmm. I think Apple applies. All the parts are from China. They're making money everywhere. Uh, Certainly they sell over all 50 states and the world. Mm -hmm. It's a global entity. Um, I know a lot of uh, my law enforcement peers and friends have said, well, this will open the door on future searches. Uh, it'll be a homicide. It'll be a property crime. And I disagree. I disagree. As, uh, as a former working cop and investigator, uh, I know what it takes to get a search warrant. I know, especially these days, it's tough to get search warrants signed. Um, so I think if you hang on to the particulars in this case, uh, two terrorists with known um, ISIS correspondence. They set up their shooting spree. They carry it out. They destroy the two burner phones that are less than Apple quality. Um, and they, they, they do it with, with no uh, hesitation because they, 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 they're comfortable in the fact that no information could be gleaned from those. But then they don't destroy the Apple phones. And so here, I think you have a terrorist group and, and maybe the information's known through through cells that the information uh, recovered recoverable possibility from an Apple iPhone is not possible. Yeah. <clears throat> My feeling, <clears throat> pardon me, is that the the, the possibility, the the 
prospect that there's really relevant investigative information on that phone is actually quite slim for two reasons. One, it was a government-issued phone that could have been with, you know, um, retrieved by the entity that employed him at any time. So that would be a tremendous risk to put that information on the phone for, for one. And for two, because they did destroy the other two phones, it's my sense that that's where any information would have been left. On an Apple iPhone, you know, I don't know that the, the, this fellow would be as sophisticated enough to really understand that truly the FBI doesn't have the ability, and, and frankly, Apple doesn't have the ability. You know, the announcement was made when the phone was made, uh, was, was introduced, but that only the really tech-savvy crowd really understood the, the, the meaning of that, the depth of that. Now, you know, there are criminal elements that do certainly use Apple iPhones for this very purpose. You know, so my sense is that um, if the, if we grant permission or if we if we compel Apple in this case, that it is potentially a slippery slope to myriad other investigations. I have a tremendous amount of respect for James Comey. I think he's one of the best directors we've ever had. Um, but in this case, I think that you know his direction for, on this should be get get your people better up to speed on trying to crack stuff like this. Be patient in doing your investigation and pursue all other means. You know, Apple has given over a great deal of data already. Sure. I, I'd, I'd fortify my argument with the fact that uh, since 9-11, when we found out that there was a lot of communication between terrorist cells on emails and, and computers, that once um, al-Qaeda and once um, Osama bin Laden found out that we knew that's the way we were tracking information, they stopped that form right. of communication. They went to better encryption. I, again, I think that the encryption is key on the iPhones as far as communication. And so every day we argue this, every day the possibility of recovering information leading back to other cells within America or future plans, mm -hmm. um, there may be uh, plans in the, in the waiting where they're waiting to see if we give the information up or not. And so, you know, it, it, it just harkens back to me that um, we have the capability, we, there, there, is, there may be some time constraint, and we're not getting the answer. So mm. maybe we'll get it in a month or so, or when there's a new Supreme Court justice, which could be several months or a year. Or a year, yeah. Right. So it, to me, it reinforces uh, a side note from this argument, but, but all the critics, all the pundit, pundits and, and armchair experts who criticize um, decisions made by law enforcement officers in the heat of the moment when they have to really gauge all the things available to them and make a split-second decision, mm -hmm. that here we have something very tangible, very important, maybe critical to uh, safety of, of American soil, and we can't come to a decision. Yeah. Well, you know, well, well, let me ask you this. Where do you think ultimately this will go? I mean, you mentioned the Supreme Court and, and, and my personal sense of the Supreme Court now is that it's going to be uh, hearing cases uh, for a really long time with a eight, eight uh, jurist uh, court. Um, and I, I actually sense that this will go through the Ninth Circuit. Um, the Ninth Circuit will almost certainly up, uh, uphold for Apple. Um, and then from there, from there on to the Supreme Court, what's, what's, your, what's your thinking? Well, I, I actually hope that um, if Apple gets its way and the decision is made by Congress, I think it would be favorable to coming up with the information. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would 
back the idea of going to Congress and asking them to rule. And I would hope that somebody in Congress or somebody at the mm -hmm. Pentagon says, hey, this is a terrorist event. We're mm -hmm. looking for information that might lead us to other terrorists. Let's tie it into the Homeland Security angle, use it one time, give them back the key and they can swallow it or whatever they want. And, to do. and I, would, I, I would absolutely accept that, um, especially given this circumstance. And I think that this is, this is maybe the critical thing that really I don't think anyone's really discussed. I, I certainly left it out of my article. If Apple is able to create this one-time key, the, the FBI takes the phone, hands it off to Apple, whether it's in Cupertino or, or another very secure location, and we know that they have very secure locations. You know, their, their developments are kept completely secret for many, 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 many months of development. So we know that they can keep stuff in-house. Give them the phone, never getting the phone back. Apple cracks the, cracks the phone, gets the data, hands the data over in paper or electronic format, and destroys the, destroys the phone that's been cracked. Mm. That would work for me. I think you'd have some, some problems with the chain of custody of evidence. I think in a, in a court, uh, they'd want to mm -hmm. see the prime of the the first evidence, the mm -hmm. the true um, evidence and where it came from, and there'd be a whole, you know, it would be the OJ trial all over again. There'd be all sorts of haze thrown mm -hmm. at the contents of the phone and how it was acquired, and isn't it possible somebody else populated this phone? I think mm -hmm. I think um, if you destroy the phone, then um, Prosecutors would always point to the fact, or, or defense attorneys, defense attorneys yeah. would always point to the fact that they never saw the process, and so they would question the veracity. I, I, I get that, but um, it's it's really tough for me to see how we can open this box and then completely seal it back up again. It, I've I just have a hard time seeing um, because it's precedent setting, you know it it. it, it Maybe there's another iPhone in another terrorist event, and maybe terrorism is the one threshold. You know, potentially that is it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, there are exceptions all through law, and it is extremely rare when we use the exigent circumstance uh, clause to circumvent Miranda or other Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the dirty hairy rule where you can torture a suspect till they tell you where the girl is buried with a limited amount of oxygen. That's unheard of, right? So I think this, this situation is so extreme, so individual, so unique, that you're not gonna see it used on search warrants for pornography or mm. stolen property and things like that. I just don't see it. Okay. Well, I've always said since I was a little kid, uh, while I have a mind, I reserve my right to change it. Um, you haven't quite gotten there yet, Jim, but uh, we'll continue the debate. And uh, thanks all for uh, listening in. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. This is Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug. Hi, welcome back. This is Jim Dudley. So, Jim, let's um, get into a very serious topic that unfortunately happens altogether too often to some of our officers out there. Um, the issue of suicide by cop, where uh, a subject uh, forces an officer's hand and has to 
um, use deadly force to protect himself from what he perceives herself uh, perceives to be a deadly threat. Um, I'll go through a little bit of uh, data here. I, I located on suicide.org. They had um, information on a study conducted between 1987 and 1997. During that period, that 10-year period, 11%, according to this website, 11% of all officer-involved shootings were suicide by cop. Of those, 98% were male. 39% had a history of domestic violence. 17% possessed a toy gun, a replica gun. Um, no percentages were given, but uh, um, a note was made that many had had a history of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and prior suicide attempts. Um, so I, I didn't get the raw numbers on how many suicide by cop instances that were, but of all officer-involved shootings, a full 11%, that's a lot of people. Um, how, how do you um, kind of prepare to um, understand, comprehend, process, and, and, and get, you know, get your, wrap your head around when you walk up on someone like that, a man with a gun call, um, or someone who's called in their own, you know, domestic violence issue, um, you know, what are some of the indicators that this could be a suicide by cop? Well, we we <clears throat> talked about Gordon Graham and his um, his famous byline: "Predictable is preventable." And in this case, when we talk about someone bent on self destruction. Uh, unless we have some precursor information, a family member calls with direct information, or we get a, a Tarasoff notice maybe from a, a psychiatrist or a, some, somebody who's providing some mental health support for the individual, it's rare that we get a tip-off that somebody is about to commit suicide or to try to induce police officers to, to essentially commit suicide for mm -hmm. them. So... As far as the predictability of it, it, it's not always apparent, and it's rarely apparent, I should say. So police officers uh, may be lured into a situation where uh, someone abruptly uh, produces a handgun mm -hmm. or uh, rushes them uh, trying to pull their gun from their holster, something extreme in order to get the violent response by the police officer. And it's unfortunate for everybody involved, of course, mm. the, the, the individual, of course, the officer, of course, the families involved. Um, there's, so, it, there's so much ripple effect from these kind of situations. And the preparedness for the officer has to come way in advance. I mean, the, the training is certainly uh, available to us at, at, in the police academies. Uh, in California, California Post does some uh, suicide by cop specific training. Um, we've had really good alliances with our mental health uh, allies in California. And I know across the country there are uh, CIT training teams for um, crisis intervention teams. Mm -hmm. And those are good for dealing with um, people in crisis. Or suicidal subjects. Or suicidal <laughs> subjects. But when you get into this, the situation where someone pulls a gun, produces a gun, threatens themselves, and then maybe threatens the officer's in order to get that, to elicit that response, it, it's important for the officers to know if they can, uh, in a situation where uh, it's not apparent that they're, they're, they're trying to do harm to the officers themselves. Time, distance, and shielding, yeah. right? Uh, if you can draw it out, if you can call resources, but the primary objective is to gain some sort of cover. You're not going to be talking, it's not a TV show where you're talking three feet standing from a person 
uh, alternately holding the gun on himself and pointing mm. at you. That, mm. that should never happen. Um, an officer should get good cover if they can, try to draw the situation out by talking to the individual and call for resources. Um, but short of that, in these split-second decision situations, the officer has to uh, protect himself and others first. Yeah. So uh, in the training, you learn all about the, the individual and, and what their goals are and um, some things that you might be able to do to, to draw out the situation long enough to, to make them second-guess themselves. But... Um, this is a really tough one. There, there's no, there's no answer. Yeah, there's, there's a couple um, p- potential indicators that you might have, um, you know, a suicide by cop call happening before you. You know, one of them being if you learn and in, in, in you're, you're dealing with a person, you're talking with a person, you're drawing it out while resources are kind of getting to, to the scene. You know, if you're dealing with a, a barricaded subject who refuses to do any negotiation. You know, if you have someone who you learn through your interaction has had a, a recent life-altering event, for example, like a divorce, a job loss, um, and, and is, is behaving irrationally, and you can kind of put two and two together, that you might be approaching a suicide by cop scenario. Um, and of course, finally, is you know that suicide, uh, that barricaded subject, if they've recently killed someone, a spouse, a family member, they may be more of a candidate for a suicide by cop type encounter than a, another type of a subject. Right, and I've I've heard that some of the precursors, um, somebody declaring they'll they'll never be taken alive right. by the not police. going back to jail, never not taken alive. Back, right, I, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily classify them as a suicide by cop situation. I think they're desperate people who back themselves in a corner, and they've got very few alternatives yeah. at that point. So, um, well, someone someone who says <coughs> I'm going out like a man, or you know that kind of thing. You know, you, you'll never take me down. You know, that's potentially, you know, like that kind of an indicator, right? Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a shootout. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a shootout. I don't yeah. think that's a, a suicide. And in these situations, you might have three or four possibility outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. The, the person gets injured or killed, the police officer gets injured or killed, or the suspect or police or the suspect gives up or is otherwise disabled mm-hmm. um, or, or disarmed by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So just like somebody standing on a ledge, you're not going to rush to them. You're not going to go try to um, put them in a bear hug while they're armed with with a handgun. That just shouldn't happen. I think once it happens, um, the the aftermath is is just as important as the training leading up to the event itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're you know, the, uh, police officers tend to like to control situations, and when a suicide by cop uh, happens, in essence, the um, subject has very briefly seized control of the of the situation. Um, they have mandated, they have dictated that deadly force be used have, by pantomiming, drawing a gun, by you know all of the things that we've talked about. Um, and in the aftermath, uh, Dr. Larry Miller, who is a police psychologist, uh, very very well respected out of Florida, um, writes for Police One, and he he actually has several recommendations, and I'll, I'll summarize them here. There will be a link on the, uh, the Policing Matters um, webpage uh, that you can get the full article. He says uh, you should conduct operational debriefings. He indicates that with 2020 hindsight, you can get to 2020 foresight. Um, so you can look at what's happened in your recent past, evaluate it, try and learn from it, and move on. Um, then he, he suggests attending a critical incident stress debriefing. 
um, professionally administered. He also says you should seek individual counseling um, for whatever duration you might kind of need or want, um, that it can help kind of get you through that, that you know, regaining control, really. Um, and then finally, and this was a really interesting one, he says, don't forget the good stuff. Um, don't let it um, don't let it kind of torture you for too long. You can get past it. You can get through it. You can get over it. Um, and, and and remembering that there's so much about the job that's so great. Sure. Well, yeah. the The old days, in you know, back in the day, mm -hmm. the debrief took place usually on a bar stool, right? Mm -hmm. Thank goodness we've gone away from that. We formalized um, debriefs. Uh, we brought whole teams together to talk about what happened. People can express their emotions and uh, talk about um, how they feel and, and, and what they thought they saw or what they saw. And that's all very helpful. The idea of getting individualized um, care is so important. Uh, we've already got pretty good processes in place where after uh, the police officer who pulls the trigger uh, gets debriefed, um, there's so many possibilities as far as resources available to them, uh, employee assistance programs, peer uh, resource officer, peer, uh, peer officers yeah. um, who can come in and talk and, and counsel a little bit, or at least listen, right? And then uh, check-ins and check-ups mm -hmm. after the fact, a day, three days, six months, a year, right? You tend to to have these anniversaries in your head and it's nice to be able to, to talk to somebody. So when the officers are involved in the shooting, they get the mandatory time off, they get retraining, they get to go out and fire their gun and gain confidence with their gun again. All this happens before they go back on the street. But the critical part is getting the follow-up mental health care. And, and before we, we end on the subject, I wanted to talk about a couple of really good resources available in California, that's through California Post. And there's a post training uh, specifically on uh, blue suicide or suicide by cop. Mm -hmm. And and nationally, uh, NAMI, the National Alliance uh, on Mental Illness, uh, talks about the importance of crisis intervention teams. And you can find out a lot of information on, on that website as well, NAMI.org. Outstanding. Well, I think we can all agree that no law enforcement officer really wants to, uh, has any um, interest in taking a life, but when they're forced to, the, the, the most important thing is that they take care of themselves in the aftermath. Right. And, you know, I've, I've talked about my own shooting in the past, and, and I know how awful I felt after that shooting. And, and this was an individual who shot at me first. So you can imagine, you can just exponentially, uh, you know, imagine how worse an officer feels when they know that the suspect prompted the shooting, maybe even with a, a, a simulated gun, not even a real gun. It's, um, it, it really requires a lot of time and distance from that event to, to build back up to, yeah. to normal. Well, as we close, I want to remind everyone listening um, that we want to hear from you. Uh, we are choosing topics based on our judgment and what we think, um, uh, we think people want to be uh, talking about. But uh, if you send an email to policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters, one word, at police1.com. That'll go to both Jim and me, and uh, maybe one of your topics will be on a future podcast. Hope to hear from you.
Hello again, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, Jim Dudley. Welcome back. Jim, um, it, according to Leoka data, um, uh, 72 police officers were killed during traffic stops in the 10-year period between 2004 and 2014. Um, obviously, the traffic stop is one of the kind of most commonly done um, I'm never going to use the word routine, but most frequently done activities. It's a self-initiated activity. So that means that the law enforcement officer has a significant amount of control at at least the beginning portion of the stop. And then things can go any number of ways once it's uh, once it's done. You know, you can you can determine where to do the stop. You can um, you can call in your, your location before the stop is even affected. Um, you can uh, do a pa- passenger side approach, a driver side approach, depending upon terrain or traffic. Um, you can utilize the B pillar of the car on either side for a little bit of uh, a little bit of um, I wouldn't say cover, but a little bit of making it difficult for the the, the subject to see you. Um, you could use the wall of light technique and just throw a whole bunch of light at the rearview mirrors. Um, I, I was at a, a conference not too long ago, and um, I heard a really interesting um, indicator uh, that a subject might be uh, looking to um, harm you on a traffic stop. Uh, Thomas Jackson of the Nevada Highway Patrol, uh, he showed us a video in which um, the driver didn't turn off their turn signal. Um, and he said that that was a, an indicator to him that the subject was thinking so hard about the attack that he didn't think about, you know, things like the turn in, turn signal. Another one, of course, would be the, you know, the brake lights are still on. You might have a runner there. You know, the wheels turned into traffic. You might have a runner there. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you guys talked about? Well, early on in, in traffic stop training, we were always taught to approach the vehicle on your terms. Just like you said, mm-hmm. pick the grade pick the stop, uh, pick the lighting, uh, pick the angle of the cars, uh, don't let the driver make you stop. So that's why you'll hear sometimes on the freeway, um, uh, the, the PA, the loudspeaker saying, keep going, keep going, pull over to the right, up ahead. And that's to get the, the officer's vantage to, to be the best. So uh, the next step was to make your approach um, Feel the vehicle, make sure there's nobody moving around in the trunk or the back seat, and approach with your eye on the driver at all times. So the wall of light, that was one of the advantages that we used. Mm -hmm. We lit them up, both spotlights, and as we approached, if it was nighttime, we put the flashlight in the rearview mirror so they couldn't see you approaching. Um, If you look for who's doing the most traffic stops and who's doing them the best. I would say, regardless of what state you're in, and maybe you would disagree with me, but I would go with the highway patrol of your state. They do the car stops the most. They do them all the time. They have a relatively low incidence. But I think whoever's pulling the stop, I think we're, we're banking on the probabilities. We're banking on the probability that there's only a driver, that they don't want to do you harm, and that they're right-handed. And with those things in mind, you have to really keep uh, an open mind to the alternative possibilities of the left-handed driver, somebody who's armed, somebody who's waiting for you to get close so they can do you harm. So you really have to keep the what-if possibilities in mind, even if 99% of the time the person uh, that you pull over is just hoping that they don't get a ticket. That may be the biggest tip. Don't let the 99% of things going well lull you into a false sense of complacency and a false sense of security. 
Tra treat all of your traffic stops as if something bad could go happen. Do your when-then thinking.